Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcast every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org In this week's episode, festival director Chantal Edwards talks to debut novelist Tori Peters about her Women's Prize long-listed novel, Detransition Baby. Described as a uniquely trans take on love, motherhood and those exes who you just can't quit, Detransition Baby follows three characters as they navigate creating a new version of family for themselves. Join us as we talk about the politics of motherhood, misconceptions about transitioning and writing complex female characters. Welcome to the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. I'm Chantal Edwards, the Festival Director, and I'm really excited to be in conversation today with Tori Peters, talking about her debut novel, Detransition Baby. Described as a uniquely trans take on love, motherhood, and those exes who just can't quit, Detransition Baby is a top 10 bestseller and was longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2021. Tori lives in Brooklyn and holds an MFA from the University of Iowa and a Master's in Comparative Literature from Dartmouth. She is the author of two novellas, Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones and The Masker. Tori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to start by asking how this last year has been for you, really. I mean, there's been a pandemic. Uh, you've released a book in a pandemic. How has it been this past year? I mean, I think that a lot of people who released books had a pretty difficult time. And I sort of feel bad being an outlier to that, where I, I in some ways enjoyed releasing a book in the pandemic in that most of my... Um, most of my writing career has been hyper local. Like it's it's been part of like a a scene of trans writers in Brooklyn. And so where we read was like at the local bar and I saw the same people. And there was a way in which I expected this book release to be, you know, have like a two mile radius of interest maybe around it. And instead, partly because of the pandemic, you know, I would do an event and and people from uh, you know, from the UK, from Europe, sometimes from South America, Australia, there are people coming to to these events from all over the world. Um, and as a result, uh, I think this this experience, this book launch, ended up being international for me in a way that it couldn't have possibly possibly been if it wasn't for the pandemic. Um, and I expect that my next book will will sort of return to a kind of local you know, a, a local way of doing it. The book is very Brooklyn. And so, um, and so I, in some ways I find myself lucky. I mean, it seems horrible to say I was I'm lucky. There's a pandemic, a global pandemic, but, but the timing in terms of finding readers who I otherwise wouldn't have ever come into contact with, I think it was just sort of a fluke of, of all these things. And, uh, there's obviously a lot of dark sides the pandemic but for me it was it was not it was it ended up having these unexpected bright sides and I guess you got to see the diff was there a different reaction in different parts of the world to to the novel yeah I mean you know the 
the United States, um, like sort of even the conversations about gender in different countries and around trans issues are they're they're really different and they're different in different places like you know in in new york for like kind of trans women in new york where things are oftentimes more radical and things like that my book was almost like assimilationist and that it was like uh you know involved with with children and family and motherhood which are which are considered conservative in some places, you know, some scenes. Whereas, you know, if I was talking to like a book group in Indiana, it was radical. It was, you know, this wild idea that a trans woman could, could uh, be part of a nuclear family or that the nuclear family might not be working. That was like a, a radical idea. And then, you know, in, in, the, in the UK, it was much more, I think, it wasn't particularly politically polarizing in the U.S. Like it, it just simply that wasn't sort of the valence along it, which um, readers approached it. But in the U.K., I think it had just in the way that the conversation is there. It was a book that was interpreted politically, and um, you know, it the 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 pushback was uh, was a lot stronger. There was more sort of um, kind of stereotypically bigoted responses to it. Um, but also there was a more, uh, I would say, vehement uh, degree of support. You know, the book the book really was important to people because there was, they, I think they felt that there was something very deeply, uh, uh, very deep at stake politically um, in, in letting trans women tell their stories in unvarnished ways. And that really mattered. So, you know, the book was, the book was, it got on bestseller lists in both countries, but it got higher in the, in the UK than it did in, in the US, simply because I think people felt like they had a lot riding on it. For sure. And I think I, I was reading about your, um, your earlier work, and I think a lot of your earlier work was very much about writing within the trans community right there, you know, um, and I wondered what that shift had been like to go from, you know, writing for a particular audience who you know is going to understand and receive the work in the way it's intended and then shift into being, I guess, published by a really big publisher and what, what that shift was like. And if you felt like there was a, I guess, almost like a lack of control about how the novel might be received. I mean, I was lucky while I was writing it because I didn't know it was going to be published by a big publisher. And so I didn't have a lot of those voices in my head where like, where I would write a line and I would think like, oh my God, this is going to be read in like 11 countries. Like that wasn't a thought in my head as I was writing. And I think that that thought would have stifled me. It's something I'm worried about in my next writing is to basically write as though nobody is listening or that as though only my friends are listening. But when I wrote it, I really didn't know. So I was like, maybe like 11 people will hear this joke, you know, and, and the uh, the repercussions of 11 people hearing, you know, if, if two people don't like my joke, so what? But, you know, if, if, if 10,000 don't like my joke, it's a little different. And the, and the first two books really were kind of about, or the, the, they were novellas. They really were addressing like sort of intra-trans stuff, stuff that, that was things that trans women argued with each other about. And then slowly as I was writing Detransition Baby, I began to think that I was writing less for a community and more for people that I had um, affinity with. Like, and I was writing along lines of affinity. And I realized that there's some trans people I don't have affinity with, but also there's a whole lot of cis women that I do have affinity with. The book is is dedicated to divorced cis women, 
because as I was writing it, I was reading all these books by divorced cis women and the trajectory of divorce looked a lot to me like the trajectory of, of, of transition where you live your life a certain way, uh, assuming it's going to be a certain thing. And then there's this, this, this event that's like a break, you transition or you divorce, and then you have to move forward um, without getting bitter about having, you know, how you spent your past. And you also can't reinvest in old illusions. And so when I began to think like, oh, actually all these divorced women, their books have been so important to me and how I move forward, maybe I have something to say back to them. Maybe there's a conversation here between trans women and cis women along lines of affinity rather than identity. It, it sort of changed how I wrote, but that as a plan is different from that being likely to, to have happened. Like, you know, when I said, oh, it's affinity, I, I still thought it was going to be a small book in, in maybe Brooklyn. And then it, it came to fruition, like far beyond my expectations. Like, you know, the fact that I found myself in book groups with moms and in, in all these different states. And um, it was like, wow, like this, this <laughs> I didn't know anyone would, would take me up on it. <laughs> I think that's such a nice way of thinking of it though and and affinity is something that I think we'll come back to but before we get into the book I wondered if I could just ask you for those people out there who haven't read it yet if you might just quickly synopsize the book. Sure it starts with Reese who I, I like to say is sort of like Fleabag but trans and in Brooklyn and the action kicks off when her ex who is a detransitioned trans woman named Ames and used to be Amy gets his boss Katrina pregnant and then comes to Reese and asks Reese if she would like to kind of get together the three of them and see if they can raise a child in an unconventional family. That's actually just the premise. That's just the first chapter. And then actually like learning what it takes to make a family outside of a typical nuclear nuclear family structure is kind of the drama the ups the ups and downs it's also the comedy honestly it's very funny to try and make a family and gender is kind of hilarious in some ways so um you know all of those things come together to to tell the story it is very funny I did uh, I've read it twice now and uh I liked it even more on second reading I'm gonna throw that in there oh thank you but like, so just, just taking the premise, you've got these three interconnected narratives. You've got, you know, Reese and Katrina and Ames. But I've got to say, for me, Reese really felt like the heart of the of the novel. Um, and I wondered if you'd ever thought if that was always the plan to have these three narratives that intersect or whether you'd thought about just perhaps following Reese. Yeah, I mean, I I tried it a couple of different ways. It's funny, like who people think are the heart of uh, at the heart of the novel. I've I've definitely had people also think that Ames is the, at the heart of the novel. Um, fewer people think that Katrina is at the heart of the novel, which is fair because I think there's a a big technical difference in how I approached Katrina's voice. But initially, I was going to have all three be equal; that they were all going to have equal voice in the novel. That was my initial way of doing it. And then, in the case of Katrina, who's a cis woman and she's half Jewish, half Chinese, Chinese American, I realized that there are other stories out there that told the story of a pregnant cis woman, and that in a lot of ways, that's not something I've ever experienced. And I was really recreating other people's stories. And so, all the characters were free and direct initially, like free and direct style. 
and where you're inside their heads. And then I decided to actually really just focus on the two trans women because I thought that was a story that we hadn't heard. And I think there's any number of cis women who've told the story of their pregnancy really well, any number of Chinese Americans who've told that story really well. And then I just would really go deeper in into um, Ames and Reese. And I think that one of the differences, I think that they get equal time, but I think that Reese is just, she's a cattier, funnier, more direct person than Ames, who's really more trying to figure out his gender, figure out what's going on with himself. So he's a more subdued voice and, and just the vibrancy of Reese ends up, you know, she's kind of a, she's kind of a ham. She's gonna, she's, she wants the spotlight. And even though I tried to give them equal share in the book, you know, Reese sort of elbowed Ames out of the way whenever she could. Yeah. Cause she, she's like, I really liked her. She's like, messy and complicated and sometimes awful and sometimes charming um and yeah and I thought of all the characters in the book she was the one that felt like she had the sort of clearest desire to be a mother the sort of clearest idea of um of of wanting to be a parent um but also maybe like this really complicated relationship to motherhood and I guess I wondered like especially near the beginning I think it, it more less so towards the end, but more so towards the beginning. I guess I found myself wondering how important motherhood was to her gender affirmation, to her sense of herself as a woman. Well, I think that one of the arcs that she goes through is the difference between wanting a child or to be a mother and wanting like a specific child and to be in a specific relationship. And I think that early on, motherhood was important to her in a sort of gender in a gendered way it was like this is what woman should womanhood should look like this is what it means to be uh, a valid woman is to be a mother and it was really about in some ways motherhood was about her what motherhood would give to her and i think one of the things that she goes through and and something that i thought about is the fact that oftentimes motherhood isn't about you it's about giving to other people and she learns that in a number of ways, like not just in terms of the biological idea of motherhood that you raise a baby, but you know the fact that trans community itself has a number of different types of motherhood. You're often kind of mothering younger trans women, showing them how to live, where to get, you know, where to get what they need, uh, how to deal with like, like the emotional travails of being a trans woman in the world, and um, it really is a mother. A motherly process. You deal with these young people who are, and young, I don't even mean that in terms of age, like young and sort of how recently they've approached womanhood and the sort of the ways that womanhood can abrade you and can hurt. And people who don't, hadn't necessarily developed armor and, and, and coping mechanisms. And so they need, they need help. They need mother, mother figures and trans women are often that to each other. And so the ways in which Reese is a mother already, and whether or not those mothering skills that she she already has transfer into a kind of more framework that we think about in terms of a nuclear family. You know, how much do the how much does the mothering of the trans world um, bleed into biological mothering, and how much you know, vice versa? Was was a lot of the things that Reese had to figure out. And in the end, I think not to not to you know give spoilers, but I think a lot of mothering is is not just about the concept, but about a mother and a daughter 
or a mother and you know, most of its daughters in this book, but a mother and a child figuring it out. And I think you see that with Reese definitely towards the end, like that shift away from it being about her to it being about the child. I think you can definitely see that towards the end. And she has that sort of dynamic, I guess, also with Amy, which I found really interesting. That sort of, you know, she's both Amy's lover, but also there's a real sort of maternal aspect to that relationship as well, right? Yeah. And I I think that a lot of us, you know, my first relationship, my first long relationship, I got into uh, when I was 19, 19 or 20. And so I, you know, I pretty much left my parents' house, then moved in with this other person. And there's a way in which when we suddenly didn't have parents, we parented each other and we like taught each other how to be adults. And and I think about that first relationship in my life, partly as like a sort of romantic relationship, but partly when it was over, it felt scary in the way that leaving my family felt scary because this is the person who I learned how to how to be with in the world how to take care of how to take care of each other in the world and I think that that's not just like sort of trans relationships I think a lot of people I know their first relationship as an adult they're parenting each other they're like okay we'll get an apartment together we'll we'll give each other shelter we'll give each other we'll teach each other how to cook food you know like these basic kind of adult things um we do for each other and so there's a there's a parental dynamic i think in a lot of you know by the time you're 40 maybe you like don't really want to parent as your lover but uh when you're really young there's there's a kind of hidden parent i think in relationships i feel really conflicted about ames because when i first read the novel i feel like i felt really sympathetic towards him you know katrina outs him awfully at that dinner you know reese's ex beats him up like i felt like he was sort of lost in this dilemma of parenthood and that he was pretty much having a a terrible time with it all. But then I read it a second time and I did feel like there was almost something manipulative about him and the way he approaches Reese. I mean, he doesn't speak to Katrina before he approaches Reese and then just offers her the thing that she wants the most without actually knowing if he can follow through on the thing he's offering. And I just wondered what your take on Ames was. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that the that Ames, there's a lot that is tragic about Ames, but Ames has more agency than he's willing to admit. You know, Ames has more uh, ability to to say stuff. A lot of what is going on with Ames is that Ames is unwilling to look at himself because uh, if he looks at himself, he he might realize, well, uh, maybe I'm a woman and I really need to do something about that, or we'll realize that I've lost some things and I need to work really hard to get them back or that I'm lying to myself. And so there's a way in which his manipulation isn't necessarily conniving, but it's a way to, to protect himself from what he really knows. So like, even let's say that part where he gets beat up and there are people who are like, you know, Ames is the victim of a transphobic attack on the street. And it's like, sure he is, but he threw the first punch. You know, and I think that part of that is playing with a little bit the narratives that we have about, you know, if you hear about a trans woman getting beaten up on the street, you think, oh, what a, you know, she must have no agency. She, something must, you know, and, and lots of times that's the case. You know, certainly there are a lot of attacks in which trans women are just victims. But in the case of Ames, I think that there's a way in which, um, you know, Ames is willing to like, know those stories and know these these thoughts and deploy them a little bit 
not necessarily to manipulate other people, but to effectively lie to himself. I was thinking about the title and I guess the sort of hot topic of, of detransitioning and how that might get get used in the world. But I think you you describe his journey so well, because I think you say that he he doesn't stop being trans. He stops doing trans. I thought that was such an interesting way of of thinking about the rationale behind his reason to to detransition. And I just wondered if you'd expand on that a little bit, just talk about that. Sure. I mean, you know, I think that there's a big difference between being trans and doing trans and that, that you know, and not, not just in terms of, in some ways, detransition is an interesting way to defamiliarize just transition itself, you know, or, or, and so I think about being trans and doing trans, not just in terms of people who, detransition and maybe they detransition because it was simply too hard to to live as a trans woman which doesn't mean that they're not a trans woman it just means that it was too hard and that's tends to be why most every person i've ever met who do transition detransition not because they're wrong about their gender or were tricked but because it was hard and and um and i can say more about that but the other piece about it is that I think a lot about the time that I spent before I transitioned, which was, you know, I think I was trans before I transitioned, but I wasn't doing trans, you know? And, and there's a, if you think about that, you might, and it's hard to describe this, like, so like, what is transness? Is it something innate? Is it something, or is it something that you do? And just sort of naming the difference between, um, being trans and doing trans, you know, I think begins to help people think about, you know, the differences between trans people. Like you can do trans in a lot of different ways and whatever that thing that you are that, you know, is being trans can manifest or express itself in all sorts of different ways. There's not one way of being, not, not one way of doing trans. Um, so I think that for me, Ames's journey was a way of talking about that distinction. And then also sort of, um, I wanted to talk about detransition because I wanted to make it casual. I mean, the title is very casual, right? Detransition baby. And I think that detransition has been, has been weaponized, uh, you know, largely by, by what I would call bigots. Um, and that actually uh, it's not that big a deal. Like, like even if we, even if we, so a lot of people say, oh, the, you know, detransition doesn't happen. Nobody regrets it, blah, blah, blah. And you can say that, but but to me, the more interesting question is a little bit like, all right, let's take that at face value. Let's take the idea that you make a decision and you regret it. Um, I think people should be able to do that. And I think that like lots of us make decisions all the time that have the potential for regret that, that are like, can be life-changing decisions. Like you can take a job on the other side of the country. You can sell everything, move across the country, go to a job and and maybe it doesn't work out. You know, maybe that job, you really wanted the job, but it didn't work out. And then you have to like kind of return home with your tail between your legs. I don't think that should be outlawed. I think that people should be able to move across the country and take risks and they should be able to have regrets without having those regrets shamed. And what happened when people got, uh, when it, when it weaponized is that like sort of shame attached to the idea of detransition, that if you weren't a success the first time you transition, if it wasn't easy and you didn't just like go along swimmingly that you should be ashamed and that the community to which you joined should be like oh you failed you're no longer one of us you know i think that's 
it makes everything incredibly painful. It makes it painful, not just for trans people who, who can't admit when things are hard, but it makes it really painful for people who've detransitioned who feel like they're being shunned and cast out. And that really the danger around detransition doesn't come from within the trans community. Like, I don't care if you detransition, go ahead, detransition, whatever you want, uh, you know, do what's right for you. And I have, uh, I have friends who, who detransitioned and you know what? They're happy. It didn't ruin their life to transition and detransition. In fact, I just did an event with this woman, uh, Carrot Quinn, who transitioned and detransitioned. And she'll tell you, it's the most boring thing about me. Was that, you know, like, it's not a big deal. It didn't affect your life. And to basically just like, let's take the pressure off of transition and detransition. You can try things. It can work out. It can not work out. No big deal. So if you do that and you make it casual um, and you talk about it, I mean, even things that are painful can be casual in certain ways. I was like, let's, let's talk about it that way. Let's actually talk about it. Let's not pretend it never happens. Neither let's, but neither let's not pretend that it's like, you know, a life altering wound or something like that. You know, it's just, you make a choice in life and, and, and then you have to make more choices. And that's what life is choices that beget more choices that beget more choices. And I think that's such a nice note that you leave Ames on in the novel because there's that the last paragraph I think you refer to three women, the three women sitting on a, a roof somewhere in Brooklyn. And, you know, Ames has that moment of, of sort of saying to Katrina, we can do this, but I can't promise you I'll spend the rest of my life as a man. And I think there's that really nice like space for him at the end of the novel while we're on the ending of the novel I've got a couple of questions about Katrina but it ends really ambiguously and I wondered why why end the novel ambiguously well I think that the journey of the novel isn't necessarily to figure out how to make a new family I think it's to pose a question and the thing that I was really concerned with as I was writing it, it were a lot of the ways that I had coping mechanisms and lies and that, uh, that I told myself, you know, like, like, here's how to, you know, I was like, here's how I'm going to get ahead, you know, in terms of my dating life, the things that I told myself about men, which Reese, you know, Reese tells herself things about men that she has to um, learn sort of aren't true or, you know, the ways in which she sabotages herself and sabotages other people um, the ways that Ames, you know, is dissociated and sort of refuses to make an honest um, declaration of what he wants. The ways that Katrina is looking for like something from the outside to save her and give her meaning, you know, whether it be queerness or whether it be love or and any of these things that she's she's dabbling in. Um, that the that the journey in the novel for me is to strip away all that stuff, strip away all the things that we tell ourselves, all the all the coping mechanisms, and 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 then when all that stuff is stripped away, to sit around with the people that you love and care about and say, what are we going to do? How are we going to make a life? And I think that that is not that's a that's a question for these characters, but I think it's a it's a generational question as well that I'm I'm interested in like trans women and cis women solving this question together like how are we going to find meaning that works for us how are we going to find family structures that work for us uh how are we going to have relationships that 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 are meaningful and that don't make us feel terrible and 
I don't want to be prescriptive in that. Like, you know, if I ended it and I was like, well, the way to do it is to get a house, you know, uh, make the first floor for this person, the second floor for this person, the kids can go up and down. Like, it's not a design solution, you know, and there's many possible solutions. So the, I think what I was trying to do in that ending was to basically be like, I don't know how they're going to solve it. This is for all of us to solve. I've, I've stripped away all the things, all the veils over this question. Now, as a generation, let's let's work together to solve it. And I hoped a, a little bit that I was handing it to the reader to be like, well, what would you do? I mean, I had written down a question that basically handed it back to you. And I was like, I'd originally written down a question that was like, okay, well, is there a, a happy ending? D- does everyone get what they want? But then I like stopped and I thought, and I thought, well, what would a happy ending look like for these characters? Um, so that's the question I'm going to hand back to you, if that's okay. Like, what what does that happy ending? If they were to have a happy ending, what what does I mean, that? I just like saw it because I I'm I got um, I'm adapting it into a television show, um, and it's 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 um, it's with Amazon. Amazon's making it a show. I mean, it's not greenlit, but it's in development. And um, but when you sell the show. They want to know, well, what happens in season two? <laughs> you know, what? And, you know, generally it's a comedy, and so comedies have happy endings. You know, I would say that the, the book is not, uh, the book and the, tele- the, the television show's answers aren't canonical for the book, but um, the answer is that they work it out. They figure out how to raise a baby together um, because if I want a season two, they can't just all be like, this is too hard you know, screw it, let's all go home. You know, that doesn't that doesn't make for a season two. Uh it's you know, a good tragic, you know, sometimes I thought like I need a real gut punch of an ending, like just real tragic gut punch. But you know, I don't think a gut punch I, I think more and more as time goes on, I'm like, you know what, we're gonna figure it out. And maybe if the first one was asking the question, maybe the second season is is offering a hypothetical as to how that question might be solved. And it, it does involve not everybody going home and giving up. Good. I was really hoping that was the answer that you were going to give because, yeah, I really wanted Reese to get what she wanted at the end of the novel. And thinking about Reese and Katrina, I think you did like you, d- you know, going back to that idea of affinity, I think you did such a good job within the novel of drawing parallels between their experiences. I mean, they both have experience of being um fetishized by men in different ways that that experience of starting over after transitioning for Reese and divorce for Katrina um and there's a there's a great line I think you write that they're both almost cis white ladies Katrina feels something's lost in that whereas Reese feels like that passing is is success and I, I wondered about their dynamic and I think there's a definite undercurrent in the novel um a, about race um and I wondered what you thought the role of race played within their their dynamic and their relationship yeah I mean I think that um I think that you really you described it very well just now in that for me, they they both have a similar relationship to like the center or to like, you know, what is centered in our society, a sort of cis white womanhood and in like kind of middle class womanhood. And by having them in conversation where they're sort of a similar distance from that center, but in, in opposite kind of trajectories, that it brings into relief the various ways in which the stories that they tell that they tell themselves might be partial or might only be from their vantage. You know, there's there's the ways that towards the end, 
Reese tries to weaponize trans identity and to say like, well, you're just like a gentrifying cis lady. And I think if it, if, if Katrina had been a white character, like a white cis character that Reese might've been able to like sort of weaponize identity and bully Katrina into, into thinking certain things. And Katrina's position was basically like, no, you know, like you're bullying me. And, and you know, here's all the ways that, that your version of motherhood is in fact a very white version of motherhood. The idea that like, that like, you know, the right to not have a baby is like the, the ultimate right. When so many women of color, at least in, in the U S you know, it's not, it's not a given that, that women of color get to be mothers. You know, we have the, the way that motherhood can be shamed for like you know anchor babies with immigrants or you know campaigns of sterilization in the past or like you know uh, welfare queens is this idea that you're an illegitimate kind of mother and there's only a one legitimate and so reese's version of of motherhood in some ways and the ways that she tries to 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 get what she wants using identity i think that katrina is well equipped to push back against that stuff and one thing that I'm interested in, you know, for me as a trans woman is, is when people call me out for being self-pitying, you know, like when, when, when I'm like, well, it's so hard for me. And then to be given a little bit of perspective on the ways that it, both it is hard, you know, to have it acknowledged, like there's ways that it's hard, but that also it's hard along only one vector and that there's a lot of different relationships beyond just trans to cis that ultimately then i think fall away and what you had was you had two women who were individuals each with a whole matrix of things trying to be like how do we be in relationship with each other and that's that's really what oftentimes i meet somebody and there's a lot of things about identity and stuff like that we're trying to figure out with each other and then as we get to know each other well it's just sort of like all right how are we going to do this like we've all got our we've all got our We've all got our ways that we can push and say, this is why we're this, or this is why we're that. But, you know, ultimately we're going to have to, if we want to be in relationship with each other, which I like to be in relationship with people, it takes a, a level of compromise and empathy and, and sometimes just not getting what I want, not, not being, not having the power. Yeah. And I think there are some really like nice moments like that between Reese and Katrina. The one that sticks with me is when they go to the the store and there's the baby registry and they have that disagreement about the crib. And then when she goes home and Reese looks and, you know, Katrina's taking it off the list. It's the one that always sticks with me where it feels like there's really space for, for that to work. And I guess I felt like the novel was quite hopeful about that. The end was quite hopeful about that. I mean, I, I, I also. You know, I think when I was writing, it's funny, I've become more hopeful about the novel than when I was writing it. When I was writing it, I think I wasn't so sure. There's a way in which, um, uh, there's a quote by Alexander Chi, which I really love, which is, be careful what you write in fiction. It has a tendency to come true. And, you know, after I finished this book about an unconventional family, I met a woman who uh, is in a sort of unconventional family, and I joined that unconventional family. And, you know, now I have a 12-year-old stepson who's essentially being raised by, like, four adults. It's a totally different situation than in the book. But for me, it was like I had worked out all of these different ways that I thought a family could compromise. And then I had to actually do it in life. I had to compromise in all these different ways and, and you know, figure out different homes and who gets what when. And, and I realized it's doable. It is very doable. It's not actually that hard to compromise once you're actually dealing with a, with a child, lots of times 
the difference between the idea of being a parent or raising a child and, and the reality is there's so much distance between sort of like the ideological, like the platonic ideal of how to be a parent and what it actually means to be a parent. And I think this is, you know, outside of even transness or cisness, I think it, there's a whole lot of books about motherhood now that talk about the difference between the expectations that mothers are put under. And, and when I face the reality, you know, it's like, oh, it's actually great to compromise. It's great to get other more help. It's great to all to do do all the stuff, and and that all happened to me after finishing the the novel. So now I like look at the problems that Reese, Katrina, and, and Ames have, and I'm like, come on, you guys can solve this. It's really easy. It's going to be better to have like extra help anyway. No problem. <laughs> like you know, but it would have been a different novel if I'd had that perspective now. Yeah, a different novel. I still think it's quite a hopeful one. What felt slightly less hopeful to me was there are some truly terrible men in this book, some some really, really toxic men. And I guess I wanted to ask about that, about the ways in which I guess Reese in particular engages with men, you know, the sort of dynamics in her in her relationships with men and whether that was a sort of deliberate. I'm guessing it was a deliberate provocation. Yeah. I mean, part of that for me had to do, especially with transness, that there's an idea that like trans women have to have this like perfect feminist take on on relationships with men and that it's like this this undue burden that trans women labor under that like if you have a toxic relationship with men or if you desire things that are bad for you like um that you're somehow you know not really a woman or or things like that and then you know there's a whole lot of literature by cis women in which cis women feel validated by relationships with toxic men starting with like sylvia plath i mean it was funny i quoted sylvia plath like uh, every woman adores a fascist and i got people were like look tori thinks that every woman adores a fascist she must she, she's clearly not really a woman because no real woman would say this and it's like i am quoting sylvia plath this is the thing and like so many women over decades have related to this poem daddy and you know but the second that a trans woman quotes it it's like it's like this is anti-feminist and you can read even something you know like the, one of the most popular books of the last couple of years normal people is about you know is is a woman who desires bad treatment from men so the question for me was why can't trans women also want this even problematically why do trans women not get to work through their sometimes uh, negative desires and um or desires that are bad for them and to me, I was like, well, I think actually we get to, because that's like, you know, that's how people are living. You know, I had to learn through my relationships with, with men who didn't treat me very well, that the difference between being validated and treated well, there's a, there's a vast gulf between those things and the, and the ways that messages, you know, of what womanhood is that I imbibe, I imbibe the same ones that cis women imbibe. And so sometimes I come to a Sylvia Plath-esque conclusions and I have to work my way past them. To expect trans women to not get to do that is to consign trans women to making the same mistakes that cis women have been making for decades and decades and decades. So for me, I wanted to say that, and I didn't want to shy away from it. So I had Reese say the things that are you know, supposed to be unsayable about relationships with toxic men, that sometimes a relationship with a toxic man in which your gender roles are very clearly defined often in toxic ways, can nonetheless be aff affirming in certain manners, and that that's something you have to work through. So that was 
why have that? And I think that Reese's journey, you know, I, I don't want to add caveats to that because Reese, when she's saying that stuff, she believes it. And Reese's journey is to complicate those sort of things in the same way that I think normal people complicates those desires or, or, or any number of books that complicate those. The Ferrante does it, you know, and I want him to be talking with those, you know, with Sally Rooney and, and Elena Ferrante are amazing writers who, who use sort of a full palette of, of experiences. I wasn't going to limit myself to things that they could do, but I, I somehow couldn't because it would be offensive for a trans woman to talk that way. And also that, I mean, those are some of the, dark like very dark but also the funniest moments of the books uh, I think Reese's interaction or like Reese describing her interactions with men I think were probably some of my favorite descriptions in the book a slightly off-topic question I guess but related to Reese Reese refers to herself a lot in the novel as uh, as transsexual rather than transgender and I wondered why I guess that's my question it's so funny, you know. I, this this is a question that I that I never anticipated. Like I didn't I didn't know that people thought that transsexual was a bad word until I published this. And it's like you know, New York Times called me and they're like, "How come you use the word transsexual?" And the surface answer, which is a true answer, is that transsexual is just a much more fun word than transgender. It has the word sex in it, and it's you know to say it, you can say it's transsexual. Like it's just a more fun word. Uh, so if if as a writer, if you're given two words, a fun word and an unfun word, use the fun word. That's my writing tip of the day. But, um, you know, also I think that there's a lot of political stuff where it's like, you know, what the right word is, what the right word is, is, is always changing. I use the word transsexual with my friends. All my friends use the word transsexual because we like, we like it. It's pulpy. It's, it's got a kind of, you know, 70s, 70s exploitation vibe to it that's like cool trans the word transgender is not a cool word the word transgender is a clinical word it's a word that was um taken up by the cdc uh during the hiv crisis to name a category kind of a category of people who they who who were testing positive for hiv it's a word that corporations use. It's a word that, you know, sort of is sanitized uh, and an umbrella term. And that's all fine. There's, I think, a reason and and good, good, there's a purpose for the word transgender. Is that the word that I use with my friends? No. If I told my friends, like, I, Tori Peters, a transgender woman, they'd be like, who, they'd like look around and be like, who are you talking to? Who are you addressing? And so part of my technique with this book was to talk to all sorts of readers the way that I talk to my friends, you know, not, not sanitize the experience, not sanitize the words that I use. And amongst my friends, I'm going to choose the, the most fun word. And, you know, to my readers, here, you get the most fun word too. Love that. I mean, that's just a great life philosophy, I think, choose the more fun word. I guess, and I'll make this my final question, I guess thinking about labels and how we we label things like I, I you know read quite a few of uh like reviews and and interviews that you've done for the novel um and noticed that it, it gets categorized a lot as you know the big transgender novel or you know um the sort of the big stalwart of like trans literature and I wondered how you felt about labels like that whether they're useful whether we should just scrap them um yeah what, what are your thoughts on on having written 
the the big transgender novel. I mean, it's funny because before my book, I was gunning for what I thought was the big transgender novel. You know, like like there's always some there's always going to be the next one that 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 knocks whoever people are talking about now off the pedestal. Like when I was writing the book that that I thought was like the big book, you know, that I was competing with in my mind was uh, Imogen Binney's Nevada. Like that was the book that like, to me, set the terms of trans literature. And that I was, I was in conversation with, with, with Nevada. And I'm sure my book did well, but I'm sure that someday there's going to be a trans woman who, who publishes like a Stephen King, like, uh, you know, numbers and people are going to be like, detransition, what? What do you know? Do you transition who? So the, it's it's a lot of its perspective. You know, if you've never heard of any trans books, sure, Detransition Baby is, is the biggest book. But, you know, I came out of a scene where there were other trans women writers who, to me, were sort of like household gods. They were the people who imagine that one day this writer will will hear me speaking to them about the things that they cared about. You know, it was, it was sort of unimaginable that that, you know, Kate Bornstein or, or that Imogen Binney or that Casey Platt or, you know, um, Janet Mock, any of these, any of these people would hear my voice. And so, you know, if I become a sort of household God to, to other people, that's great. But the thing about household gods is that they're in some ways very personal and very replaceable. So, and I, I imagine that the last thing I'll say about that is that, that I didn't come here also to be alone. I didn't come here to be on a pedestal. You know, I came here with, with my friends in some ways and I'm excited because it's a burden also to be the only one. You don't want to be the only one in places. Like then you have to represent all these other people. You have to speak for them. Like, I don't want to speak for my friends. I want my friends to speak for themselves. And I'm a better artist when I don't have that burden of talking on behalf of other people. Like if I, I say oftentimes, like if I'm making a joke on behalf of all trans women, it's it's often a bad joke. Like if I, if I'm, if I, if, if it's so universal and so broad that I have to represent all trans women in that joke, there's going to be people who are like, well, that's not my situation. So how dare you? Whereas if I can make a joke, that's really tight, really specific, it be, it's a good joke. And it ends up the specific oftentimes opens up into the universal. So I often say like, I want a cacophony of voices up here so that whatever I'm muttering under my breath in that cacophony I can say whatever I want. Amen to that. Amen to that. Okay, so we know the TV show's coming up, but what's next, writing-wise? Have you got something else on the go? I've got two projects. One is going to be announced uh, next week, so by the time this, this comes out, it'll be it'll be announced. But I had written these novellas before I published Detransition Baby, and they're really, really small circulation. So they are getting republished. The two novellas are getting republished by Random House and Serpent's Tale, revised and republished, or reissued, I guess is the publishing term. And then there's two brand new novellas. So it's like going to be a coll- like a quartet of novellas published in a single volume that sort of explore, it's across four different genres, spec fic, horror, teen romance, and historical fiction. There's one in each genre, and they're all exploring sort of the far edges of the trans experience. Um, and um, so that's a collection that's gonna, that's, that'll be out the next, I think probably a year or two, probably two years, I think. Um, but it's Serpent's Tale in the UK. And then I'm writing what I'm calling a queer financial thriller. That's like the next novel. 
um, which I realize is a queer financial thriller. Those aren't words that often go together, but I'm interested in what, as trans women ascend and trans women start having access to power, how are we going to behave? Are we just going to betray each other? Are we going to just, you know, become all out capitalists? Are we going to, is there still going to be a sense of community and affinity? So I'm writing, I'm sort of using like a Breaking Bad mixed with Hustlers and Little Great Gatsby to to talk about that question. I'm sold. I'm sold. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for for being here today and for for talking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. I agree. This is uh, this is really great. Thank you for thanks for inviting me. And I'm sad I don't get to actually go to the you know Birmingham festival, but maybe one day. Another year. Next year. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope next year. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham LitFest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.